The Sefer Tavazir is it's not really a regular Sefer. It's not really a regular Sefer. None of the none of the Pizesnes Svarim are regular Svarim. Whatever it means, whatever the word regular Sefer means. <coughs> this was the these were the Ksavim that were that were placed into a tin container. It was the uh, it was the Rebbe's last and final spiritual will and testament that he left that he left for the Jews who he, he he was hoping might survive that he believed that there were Jews someplace in the world especially in Israel at that time it seems what the Rebbe wrote in that wrote on that page that was placed with these writings. Into that uh, into that container, it seems that the Rebbe believed that there was a possibility that all of the Jews of Europe were going to be killed, that there wouldn't be a Jew left in Europe. Based upon what he saw, what he experienced, he thought that was possible. But he was certain. But he was certain that there would always be Jews remaining alive in Israel. That Hashem had promised that there'd always be a Jewish community, a Yishuv, in Eretz Yisrael. So he was hoping that somehow this would be found and it would be taken to his brother in Eretz Yisrael, which it was, which is altogether a remarkable thing, which is Mamisha Nase, a miracle. And it's definitely, as I've said, to those of you who are not familiar with the life of the Piazetsna, it's definitely worthwhile, more than worthwhile. It's, it's, it's something which is almost obligatory these days. To read, to read uh, some of the biographical material that we have in the introduction to a student's obligation, in the introduction to Holy Fire, Sacred Fire, the introductions to the translations that have been coming out over the past ten years. There you can read from Rabbi Sarasky, one of the great biographers from Eretz Yisrael, something of what he wrote about about the Piazzetts, and I have a Sefer that was published a couple of years ago with a number of articles and uh, descriptions of the way the Rebbe was conducting himself during those final those final months, the final years, and more about the Chesidus of Piazzetsna, what Piazzetsna was in those days in Warsaw. <coughs> Leading up to the war and during the war, the name of the Sefer Tzavazir is you might familiar from Rashi, from Chazal. It literally means it's literally translated as exhortation and behest. Sav is, is a commandment, and Zeros is uh, is to is to cause one to to be misdirected, to to move quickly. So, <clears throat> these were tires. It's very hard to date exactly when each one was written. Some of them, some of them can be dated, but we know that that uh, they were all written between the years 1928 and 1939. The last entry of the Rebbe into this journal, which is exactly what it is. That's why it's not a regular cipher. 
It's a journal. It's a journal. It's, an, it's a remarkable thing. It's a, it's a diary. It's a journal. It's some of the most intimate thoughts of of a person whom people like us should should not be allowed entry into such a into such a heart and such a mind. But but the Rebbe must have the Rebbe must have had Ruha Kodesh to know that that how desperately those Jews who would remain after the war would be would need some physic, would need this type of direction and guidance and inspiration. Otherwise it's hard for us to understand. It's it's almost it almost doesn't exist in the history of our people that a tzaddik should leave behind such a document. It, this is this is a unique a unique experience that we're going to have. And it's like that when you learn when you learn the the Rebbe Swarm in general, that that you don't find among all of the writings the Ksavim from all of the generations anything as personal as personal as as intimate and as real as the writings of this Sadik of the Piazetsman. And it's filled with an unbelievable urgency. Everything that he wrote is filled with a sense of urgency. It's like you feel that the Rebbe is grabbing you and screaming at you in, in his beautiful way. It's not like another Sefer where you open a Sefer and you learn a Sefer. You learn a Sefer. And this some, sometimes you open a Sefer and you feel that this Tzaddik, oh, he's talking to me. I understand this. This, this, is, this is something I can appreciate. Other times you feel you open a Sefer, well, it's a beautiful thing, but it's not for me. But the, the, the writings of this tzaddik, in particular, Tzavaziras, these, these last, these entries into his own into his own journal. Here we here it's almost impossible not to feel the Rebbe's presence and not to feel him, not to feel him um, telling you that at this point we have no choice. We have no choice. This is this was his last message, and he. And he believed that he had the responsibility to give over this message before the world that he was familiar with would be destroyed. Whether he knew it until, certainly, certainly, uh, since the last entry was in 1939, by that time the Rebbe saw things, the Rebbe saw things developing. The, that, the unbelievable description of, of the Rebbe's feelings after his, after his son died. Which is in 1939 was pretty much the last, the last entry into the into his journal. But there's no question in my mind that from the time that he began writing down some of these thoughts, that he had a very, very strong intuition, uh, a piece of ruach hakodesh that was telling him that that there are certain things that he must, must finish before before the destruction of European Jewry. And we therefore have. The most authentic remnant, the most authentic, the most authentic document of a Jew, of what a Jew was like, a real Jew was like, before the Mulchama, before the war. This is more of an authentic document than anything you'll see in any museum, or any picture that you'll see, or any documentary about life in the shtetl. This is an authentic Jew, and the and the thoughts and the feelings of a, of an authentic Jew. <coughs> On the eve of destruction, and um, and therefore one has to realize that it's a, it's an unbelievable schus, it's an unbelievable schus, and it's us. That's why there is the feeling of urgency. It's very hard to learn this. It's very hard to read these tiras here, and especially in Eish Kaidish, in the Sefer Eish Kaidish, It's very very hard to read the tiras without feeling a sense of responsibility 
to carry some of these things out, if not all of them. And that's that's something which you have to realize before you begin. Sometimes you approach a safer, and, and the thought when you approach the safer is, you know, uh, let me hear something interesting, a nice vart. If somebody comes to learn Savaziras or Eish to hear a nice vart, they're going to be very surprised because a nice vart, you know, you tell over and everybody appreciates it and, you, and you're the life of the party, you know, by a nice vart. But when it comes to these tires and the teachings here, particularly in an Eish Kaidish, so they don't allow you to sleep. They just don't allow you to, to, to remain the same person. You can't remain the same when you learn these things. And that's the feeling that, that, uh, that uh, I've discussed with many of my chaverim. We've learned it. And it's difficult to learn together with, with others because it's, it's such a private thing that you feel the Rebbe's talking to you personally. But we have here, Baruch Hashem, in, the, in our group, we have a, a feeling of, of a chavrai of closeness and we have to try to do our best. And um, maybe some of these terrorists will learn together with pieces in the Eish Kardash. Some of them, some of them, you see that they that they belong together with the terrorists in the Eish Kardash. I apologize that uh, not everybody has a safer, and I'll I'll try to get a few more swarm that will have Mitzvah Shem ready after Yantus a couple of more swarm. Okay, so let's begin. It's Chilu Rechimu with with fear and with love. Now each one, each piece is separate. So therefore, if somebody can't make it on a certain area of Shabbos, uh, so every tire is a different. Again, these are entries. It's what the Rebbe was feeling that moment, that day. There's not a sefer that was thought out, and and it was a, it's a sefer that was just an outpouring of of the tzaddik's heart. So from day to day, there are different there are different teachings, and some of you definitely will notice those who 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 learned who who just learned. Together with us, B'nai Machshav you'll see many of the major ideas from the B'nai Machshav you'll see them reappearing, albeit, in, again, with more of an urgent tone. But you'll see, you'll see Torahs, you'll see teachings and ideas from the, from the um, B'nai Machshav one, one of the wondrous things here is that there are certain techniques, certain practical techniques, advice that the Rebbe offers that are not found anywhere else. Are not find any, found anywhere else. Some of them are found nowadays if one would if one would search, although one shouldn't search through through the literature of Eastern religion, there are certain there are certain things that are, are now common practice in that world and have and can be traced back to the Sifriya Kabbalah, but that the Rebbe developed ideas that the Rebbe developed and techniques that the Rebbe developed uh, long before anybody else. So he begins by saying, Matayv, Natsavaziv is at the back of the, these are a few swarm, the, what, what you have in front of you is the Hachshar, Savreich, Mova Hasharim, and Savazirus. Hachshar, Savreich was the follow up to Chavis Atalmidim to students' obligation. It was meant for those who learned. Talmidim, and then were already married, and would follow that up with Hachshoros Avreichim. Mavash Aram is is basically the Rebbe's introduction to Kabbalah, to Kabbalah, and to the Masorah from 
Moshe Rabbeinu all the way till our days, understanding Kabbalah as a continuation of prophecy of Nebuah, and how that influences us even these days. And then Savaziru's of the is this personal journal of the of the tzaddik. As usual, as Hebrew is is poetic, but it's more than it's more than uh, than in Bnei Machshavatov because that was written uh, as that was written as uh, instructions to the Hasidim and the Bnei Machshavatov, and this is written as an outpouring of his of his emotions. Therefore, the the uh, lashon becomes even more difficult. It definitely is kedai to have the uh, English translation to heal the soul, with, uh, which is an excellent translation. Still, we have to learn it together, of course, in, in the way that it was written in Lashon HaKadosh. <coughs> Even though my translation, as we go along, is certainly not as accurate as the fellow that translated, but he put a lot of work in, 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 uh, into it. But, but uh, that's not how one learns. You learn in the way that the, it was written. The Rebbe says, wouldn't it be wonderful if it were possible to live in this world another 70 years after our years have been concluded? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could, if we could live 70 years after our lives have been finished? To live another 70 years. Because all of the days of our lives we're struggling to educate ourselves, to raise ourselves. To straighten out all self deceptions, all confusion, all crookedness. And to nurture greatness, bigness to nurture greatness within us, to nurture within us. All of our lives we're struggling to to straighten out all these self-deceptions and all the narishkeit, and to nurture within us some greatness. So all of our life we're just struggling. So if we were able to have that second life after this life, would be wonderful because then we'd be able to live Chaim a life that, that that's polished, that's shining. Chaim Zakim, a life that's pure, that's refined. Even in this world, we'd be able to live in a world that's so unrefined, so ugly. We'd be able to live. We'd be able to live after those seventy years of struggling and working. We'd be able to live. Lives that are finally mitzuchzachim and zakim, pure and polished. This is the tragedy that after all of the work and after all the struggling and after all of the preparations and so on, suddenly we're not there. Suddenly life ends. Because God has taken us. God takes us away. So the Rebbe says, what could one do? It's a terribly frustra- frustrating thing. Finally, after an entire life of working, you're ready to live. Now I'm ready to live. So the person says, no, let's go. Now I'm ready to get going. Finally, I understand the truth. That last moment of life, one understands the truth. 
So now one's ready to live. But now it's too late to live. The Bernstein takes it. So what can one do on some level? Because obviously we can't change this. So what, what, is it, what can we do to alleviate some of the frustration and pain? And what can we do to perpetuate ourselves, our accomplishments, our achievements, just as we were on the brink of something, just when we were about to discover something, just when we were going to taste a little bit Yishavadas, a little bit Menucha, a little bit Geula, a little redemption. So then, then it's already a Levai, it's a funeral. So what does one do? Obviously, the Rebbe is only talking about those who are struggling and working, not those who are dreaming their entire lives. So, so since this is the Metzius, no, since this is Taka the Metzius, this is the reality. There's also something that we don't find in other swarm. Although other swarms speak about making a cheshben nefesh an accounting of one's soul, to see, to try to review the day, of course, and to know a cheshben nefesh whether to go over the mistakes that one made during the day. But the Rebbe is not talking about mistakes. The Rebbe says it is good for a person to write, to put into writing all of his thoughts, meaning his deeper thoughts that he has while he's alive. The Rebbe here is is justifying the writing of a spiritual journal. That's what he's doing in this first piece. Why is he writing this? He's explaining why is he writing such a sefer, it's a sefer, whatever this is. He's explaining why is he doing this. Because the Rebbe, the Rebbe is telling us that in order for a human being to be able to go on, in order for a person to perpetuate that avoda, that work, that investment, so the person, it would be Kedai, it would be worthwhile, it would be good for somebody to put into writing his deepest thoughts. Kol Loy Lasa is shame b'chaber chibur. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about having a name as an author, being known as an author and putting out some, some safer. That's not what this is about. That's why it, it, it could very well be that under, uh, under different circumstances we would never have read such a cipher. But when the Rebbe saw what was happening, when the Rebbe saw what was happening, he decided that it had to, that it had to, that this is something that had to be buried underneath the ghetto and that somehow Hashem would, would rescue. But he says, this is not, this is not for the purpose, Allah says, shame, b'chaber, this is not for the purpose of, of having a name, the chaber chibur, to write a cipher. So what is it for? To engrave one's essence upon paper. Lachros, not just to write. Writing is, writing is not so hard. How do you engrave? There's a difference. If you look at the Torah of the Balatanya, in Lukute Torah by Midbar, in Parshas Chukas, so I don't have time. It's a long piece there. Look at the Torah from the Alter Rebbe. So the, the Rebbe talks about what's the meaning of Chakika. It's not enough that the Torah was written for Jews. The Torah was engraved in Jews. Chakika. It's engraved. It means like the Luchos, right? Through and through. 
So the Rebbe says it's not enough just to write down some thoughts, but they have to be engraved. To engrave one's own spiritual self. One's spiritual, one's spiritual portrait. Spiritual profile. To engrave onto paper. Ulekayim, and this is difficult. Now this next sentence or two is very difficult. Or very difficult. These, these. So he says, Ulekayim is kol gilguli hanefesh. And in doing so, by engraving one's deepest thoughts upon paper, it's possible to transcribe and to preserve. L'kayim, to preserve, as kol gilguli hanefesh, all of the, all of the experiences, all of the ups and downs, l'filoseha im aliyoseha, all the ups and downs, the risings and fallings, the ascents and the descents that one experienced during life. All of the the essence, the spiritual essence of a person and one's hasogis, one's spiritual achievements, accomplishments, the kinyana that one acquired, that one acquired throughout the course of one's life. And if one does this, if one is able to engrave his deepest self upon paper, then then on some level, he will live on forever in this world. In this world. We know that, of course, he'll live on forever in the next world. But he'll be able to live on forever in this world. To live an eternal life. He'll be able to live on forever in the lives of his spiritual successors. The ones who will eat and will consume his essence. In other words, those who will live on, whether it means his own children or his students, but the, the, this person who engraves himself upon paper will be able to continue living in the lives of those who follow him, as generations come and generations go. There's a note on the bottom that the Rebbe, that the Rebbe himself wrote, I guess to explain it a little bit more, all on the bottom of the page, Hago, you have that? It's there, right? So he says, Hago. That the generation that follows the death of the author of the Mechaber will be able to extract and to acquire something from all of that to learn something from all that was left behind by the Mechav, by the author. 
and generation after generation. Just as we're going to do now by reading this, by learning this. Then the author's soul continues to live forever within those who follow him. The author's soul takes on different different ways of expression, of expressing itself as the generations come and go. In other words, one generation, one child, one student might read the might read this self portrait and it might affect that generation in one way. And then a the following generation can be affected a different way. But what they have in common, all of them have in common is that they are the they are receiving the Yerusha, the spiritual Yerusha. Many parents are able to leave over are able to leave over to their children some possessions, a couple of dollars, maybe a piece of property. But to be able to leave over to a child, to leave over to a student, to be able to leave over a description of one's struggles as a Jew and one's difficulties in becoming a Jew and one's Elias and one's Eurydice, good days and bad days. Since the Nishamas are connected in a very deep way, particularly in one family, those Nishamas are all connected in a very, very deep way. So that certainly... When that's left, then the, then the one who wrote who wrote that that uh, spiritual will and testament will be able to will be able to help the children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, and students and grandstudents and great grandstudents will be able to help them in a way that that money can't buy, that can never be bought and can never be given, that can never be kept in a bank or in stocks or in bonds, but in something that, that can be given over to a child, to a grandchild that will last forever. And in this way, and in this way, the Mechaber is able to live forever if he keeps this spiritual diary. Because it's only at the end of one's life and a life of struggling that one realizes how to live. So therefore you can be of great help and great service to the ones who follow you in terms of how they can live. And they subsequently will, will give over to their children. And so it goes on, one generation to another. And this way the tzaddikim are for, remain forever alive. Now there was a tzaddik, there was a tzaddik who died a few years before, who died a few years before the, the, um, a few years before the rabbi. In the vastness of Rav Cook's writings, that he himself did not edit or put together, to a large extent he didn't put together, but Talmidim, his son, the Nazir, they're still working on it. Many of the writings of Rav Cook haven't yet been published. There's a safer that just came out two years ago, Midbashur, that uh, for reasons that are quite complicated, uh, were not able to be published until until recently. Some of it was translated now into English, by the way. Just came out about a month ago. Midbashur. 
but translated by Rabbi Tzal Naor, who did the uh, who did the Oros into English, <coughs> pieces of the Midbar Shur. So, uh, in Rav Cook's writings, we also find we find from time to time uh, we find a very very personal, intimate revelation of self. Now, I just want to mention that. I think I once read with you a, 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 an excerpt from one of the from a shir that was given by Rav Soloveitchik all of a sudden. And uh, Rav Soloveitchik described in this was, say, was discussing in this shir. I think it was in 1968 he gave that shir. Some sort of a convention, probably where most of the people had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Certainly none of us ever did. Uh, <clears throat> But it's it's such a remarkable document. Also there of Soloveitchik, you know. So he says, he explains a little bit of what it was like growing up in that world of Brisk. It didn't make a difference that he that he didn't live, actually. His father, of course, was the Rav of Chaslovich. It was a Lubavitcher village. That's where his father, Rav Aisha, was, was Rav. <clears throat> but the world of Brisk was intact, even outside of Brisk. And he describes there how how in earlier in earlier days, in the way that he was raised, that even a parent, he says, that I, I once read this together with you, that a father didn't tell his son that he loves him. That a husband didn't really talk to his wife, a wife didn't talk to the husband openly about the emotions. It was very rare. Right? We don't see this in Tanakh with the exception of Shir Shim. And even in Shir Shim, look, it's so concealed, it's so covered. It's written in such, it's the most intimate safe in the world. But it's so intimate that the Chacham didn't want to have it in Tanakh. But to, to, to be, to be, to, to communicate in a, in a way of self-revelation. So Salvechik said Jews didn't do that. Therefore, we know that the Kaddish Kaddashim was so hidden, was so hidden with curtains and and, and, and walls until you can get to the Kresh Kedoshim. Because that which is most precious and that which is most holy has to be very, very carefully protected, has to be very carefully preserved. And it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to let out the deepest emotions down like this. Because it's a violation. It's violating that which is, which is, which is most holy. So the deepest feelings that people had, they didn't share with others, the Rav Solvechik said, at least in his world. And he says, in the way of Yiddishkeit, we didn't see that this was the natural thing for teachers to be or parents to be so self-revelationary. We didn't see it. And he described there, that I once read to you from that excerpt from 1968, he describes how how he once he was once parting from his father and 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 it looked like there was a very strong likelihood that they would never see each other again. Baruch Hashem, they did. That was a, it worked out, but there was a strong possibility that they would never see each other again. And he describes there that there were people standing there also, on the side, and that his father Rav Moshe Zechutzaglavacha shook his hand and said, "Go in peace." That was it. Go in peace. God should watch you. And that was it. 
So Rav Soloveitchik said that the people that were there were watching in wonder at this at this example of brisker of brisker lambdas, of that coldness, of that what seemed to be a terrible coldness, which he never thought about his father. Just he said his father never. He wrote that his father never said I love you. His father never said a, a, a personal word to him. That's what he wrote there. It's it's tragic. I guess I shouldn't say it's tragic. Because that was a much celebrated choice. That was a different world. I, I take that back. But from our perspective, from our perspective and our way of looking at things, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. But then Rabbi Soloveitchik goes on to explain that we can't do this anymore. He says, I survived that, and I believed in my father's love. But I just knew that there was a way of being reserved and being contained. And he admired and loved his father even the more for it. Because that which is holiest remains behind boundaries and, and curtains. Anything that's intimate, like the Kruvim, the Kruvim, as you know, were like, Chazal tells the Kruvim were, were a, man and, 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 a man and a woman. Right? The Kruvim that were by the Holy of Holies. So certainly with his intimacy, it has to be kept very quiet and very hidden. The world as it is now, is those things that are supposed to be most intimate and most hidden are, are plastered all over on billboards and are, and are shoved in everybody's faces. And this is all for the purpose, supposedly, of intensifying an experience of intimacy. But on the deepest level, we realize that it is taken away from our generation all that is precious and all that is real and all that is intimate. That's what television is all about. That's what the movies are all about. That's what literature has become. That's what trash is. But Rav Soloveitchik said that nowadays, nowadays he says that we're not giving over. We're just not being, he says, in the old days, that feeling of closeness to God and family was able to be given over in an unspoken way. In an unspoken way. It didn't have to be described, and one didn't have to go into details of to describe one's feelings. In all honesty, my father raised us also, not with that type of an exp- expressiveness, and probably most of you were not raised also with the with expressiveness. At least if you have European parents, it's, it's uh, certainly that was the case. And that's where Rav was coming from. It wasn't just in Brisk, it was in Poland, it was in Hungary, it was everywhere. Very, very emotional people, people that were on fire with emotions. But those emotions that were strongest were kept, sorry, were kept within the self. And that's the way Jews lived. Rosalvechik says that that they were able to give over that feeling for family of love and that feeling for Yiddishkeit. They were able to give it over without speaking. They didn't have to say it. Each, the, everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. And it was enough if there was a gesture, or there was a smile. It wasn't necessary to to express oneself. But he said, Rav Soloveitchik said that, you know, that he was he was privileged to, to be there. He was privileged. And this itself is, is a revelation of, of, of Rav Soloveitchik's self, which if you ever had the schus of being in his presence, you realized how painful it was for him to do. And he was doing it with Shem Shemaim to give over to the next generation. Because by nature he was Bechlal, not someone who would reveal himself. He was the most private person on earth. And, to, and for him to say that, and he usually only spoke this way 
Generally, he spoke this way when he was getting close to Rosh Hashanah Kippur. That time of the year. But for him to speak of his own experiences as a child and growing up, it's very, very, it must have been an, it must have taken an, an unbelievable effort to draw out from himself those words, those thoughts. But Rav Soloveitchik said that we can't afford to, to, to be hidden anymore. The, the kids don't see it anymore. He says, I was, Rav Soloveitchik says, I saw Rav Chaim Brisker, I was with my grandfather davening him, Kip. And I saw what it meant for a Jew to, 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 to be transported back to the base of Mikdash and to be one of the Leviim in the base of Mikdash. I remember I was once in Shiva and Rav Soloveitchik said, and we, we were, we, we, when we heard this, we were so floored by it. You have to realize he, he never, the whole year, he never said anything personal. It was, ne- it was just learning. But it was relentless learning. It was a relentless intellectual experience being with him. So when he would, when he sat back, and it was before Yantif, when he sat back and he had a certain look in his eyes, so we were riveted, you know, we, we were looking and waiting to hear maybe a, a drop of himself, not just his mind, but his heart. So when he said once, I was there when he said it, he said that, he says, if I would, he says, if I would be in the Besamekdish, he says, I would know the avoid of the Kahanim and the Levim better than any of the Kahanim and Levim who were there. So what? <laughs> because he was so humble. You know, if you were there, you saw he was such a humble person. It was such a strange thing to hear from him. And then he, and then he was quiet, and he, you saw that he was very emotional. And he said, you probably think that I'm an egomaniac. Those were his exact words. He says, but I'm not saying it because of me. But if you would have been with Reb Chaim Brisker, if you would have learned, as I did with my grandfather, those years that we were together, Yom Kippur, we stayed up the entire night learning the Seder HaAvayda. The Avayda of Yom Kippur, if you would have stayed up the entire night, Yom Kippur, as I did with, with Rabbi Chaim Brisker, with my grandfather, learning the whole Seder HaAvayda, you would also know it better than any of the Kahanim Levim and the Besamekdish. And when he spoke of these things, he was there. And he described his grandfather's davening as a person completely consumed. That when he would say, Mara Koyin, how the Koyin looked when he came out from the Kodesh Gadoshim, that we say, we say Yom Kippur, Mara Koyin. He says that it wasn't just that Pia, the song, it's my grandfather, this Mamish, there. He was there. And we were there with him. He took us back there. So Soloveitchik said that the, that the, that the kids nowadays, they don't see that. He says, because the fathers aren't there. And the grandfathers aren't there anymore. Maybe the grandfathers, they should be, well, something, something we could still glean from them. But the parents, he says, that they're not there anymore. So how are they supposed to take any of us back? Therefore, he said, although this was not the way of Yiddishkeit all the years to reveal the secrets of one's own avayda, but he says, we can't afford anymore, we can't afford to go on this way. And he wasn't even speaking about parents. He was saying, since the parents are unable to do this. In other words, they don't see. Children nowadays do not grow up seeing their parents consumed by emotion during tefillah, during davening. They don't see this. They don't see this. What about the kids that they see their fathers going to shul a half hour late every week? Or the kids that they see their, their fathers talking in shul every week? 
So where is their avodah supposed to come from? If they see that their fathers themselves, God forbid, are not particularly concerned about davening, don't care much about davening. So where are they supposed to take it from? So Salvechik was talking to teachers. And he said that the rebellion, the teachers, the men and the women who are going to teach the next generation of Jews, they must, they must speak about their, about their struggles in, 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 in Yiddishkeit. They must reveal something of themselves, communicating these things to their, to the children who were placed under their care. Or Hashem sent them. Rav Cook, throughout his writings, there are some of these pieces, these bits and pieces of revelation of self. Somebody had a wonderful idea a few years ago in Israel to take all of those pieces, or uh, not all, many of the pieces, where Rav Cook is just, just like flying off the side. It's not contained anymore on the page. And to and to put together, to put them from all the storm into one little sefer that's called, very appropriately, it's called Chadorov. Chadorov, as it says in Shir Shem, we're going to read him in a short while, even tonight if you read Shir Shem Friday. Heviani Hamela Chadorov, that the king brought me to his private chamber. Hashem brought us Harsinai into his private chamber. Heviani Hamela Chadorov. So the Jew that put these writings together called this Chadorov. Rav Kook's private chamber. And he put into one place some of Rav Kook's, some of Rav Kook's expressions that the PSSN is talking about here. And I wanted to, I wanted to share with you an example or two of what Rav Kook was going through in order to engrave some of his self-portrait on, on, on paper and that we have, Baruch Hashem, this is, uh, you know, I don't want to say unfortunately, but Rav Kook's Hebrew is, you know, it's a very, very, very difficult. <laughs> when you're leaving the Piazestan to Rav Kook, you feel a certain sense of, uh, 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 when you leave from Rav Kook's writings to the Piazestan, you feel, huh, it's like a relief. Now it's going to be easy Hebrew. That's how difficult Rav Kook's Hebrew was. But again, it's because of the way that he was writing, and particularly in these pieces. But I wanted to share with you a little bit. Just listen to this. This whole this whole sefer is just is unbelievable. Chadarov. It's like I take this with me everywhere I go, and it has that it has that picture of of Cook on the cover. That uh, it's not so common that picture, but it's this picture of him, where you know he used to go. As I told you last week, we were talking about. He used to just take these flights. He was gone. Somebody was able to take a picture of him. He when this picture was taken, he wasn't anywhere in this world. You could see he Mamish wasn't in the world. So. See, he wrote in one of his in one of his Torahs, in the middle of the Torah, he wrote all of a sudden, "Hachzorius al hayelodim shel haruach." He says, "There's a certain cruelty." Listen to this. There's nachzorius. There's a cruelty that is shown to the children of one's spirit. Hachzorius al hayelodim shel haruach. Who are the children of one's spirit? What does that mean? Hayelodim shel haruach. He says, Shaholchim v'ne'avodim, that these children of one soul, of one spirit, of one soul, he says, are holchim v'ne'avodim. They, they, they get lost. They die. These children die. The children of one soul, of one spirit, die. 
Now he speaks in the first person. The Pizetzn is talking about people doing this. Right? That one should, he's saying, one should engrave one's spiritual self. One should do this. But in these pieces, Rav Kook wasn't, didn't even say one should do it. Rav Kook says, me. He says, He says, I'm guilty, he says, of killing. I'm guilty of killing, of losing my spiritual children, the spiritual heirs that 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 the person was talking about. I'm guilty of doing this. Why? Because I have failed to give life to my spiritual children. Because I haven't found the proper expressions to enclose my deepest thoughts so that they could go on and live beyond me. I haven't found the words to express my feelings. And therefore, the children of my soul have been left to die. Because I haven't found the proper words. Could you imagine if Cook said this? Who, who in our history has had such a way with words like of Cook. But he says, I can't, I can't tell you what I'm really feeling. And because of that, I'm not able on some level to perpetuate. And therefore, some of my feelings and thoughts have been aborted. Have been aborted. <clears throat> and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to reveal, how to bring, to give life, and to bring into the world the true essence of my feelings. This cruelty embitters my heart. He says it embitters my heart. It causes me to, to feel embittered. And it fills me with a great spiritual weariness. I'm tired. He says, I'm tired, I'm weary. I'm trying. I'm, it's hard. I'm trying so hard. I'm trying so hard to to to, to do what the Piazzasna was telling us to do. Rav Cook says, I'm trying so hard to do this. He says over here, let me do a little bit more. He says, What am I going to do with these machshobas hashotfos? How do you translate machshobas shotfos? The currents of thought, the waves, the flood. A flood. What am I going to do with the flood of, of feelings and thoughts? Libi doeg, my heart is filled with worry. Al asher nechtovos. That they're not being written. So why do they have to be written? So we could say Rabbi. We could say to Rav Kook Rabbi. So don't write them. I'm the Rabbi. Where does it say you have to write these things? Why do you have to write these things? Why are you so sad? He says he's not sad. His heart is worried and broken. Why are you so sad? Who's going to understand them anyway? Lamaisa. What are we going to do with all of this? Why do you have to write this? My heart is worried that they're not being written. That they haven't been engraved 
Umizgamos from the word golem. They haven't taken form and shape. Domeli. It seems to me, Kiluhain Parchos Laruach. I feel that these feelings, these thoughts, are Parchos Laruach. They just, they just fly off into the wind and they're gone. They disappear. Not, that's exactly what he's worried about. How do I bring myself and what I'm trying to give the world and be for the world, my my children, my students, and the, and the whole world? How am I supposed? How can I bring it down to Asiya Shabasiya to Malchus Malchus? What am I going to do? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to take it from that place. I don't know how to bring it down and to put it into this world so that other Jews will be able to be changed, inspired, uplifted, to be transformed, to be brought back to God. I don't know what to do. Because, because I know that these thoughts and feelings have the ability to change the world. Rav Kook, Rav Kook was certain that he had a unique mission to the world. He was certain. And, and if, you would, if you would have this and you would read parts of it, we would share some of these things together, you'll see that Rav, Rav Kook had no question in his mind. This is this had not this he was the most humble person in the world. This did not contradict his humility. Just like Moshe Rabbeinu was certain that he had a unique mission. So he was certain that he had something unique he had to bring to the world. And he's frustrated. He just can't he felt that he can't do it. He felt he felt that he couldn't do it. And he was right. He he he, he couldn't. And it's painful. With all that he left us, he couldn't, and that's why it's, his writings are so difficult and so misunderstood. And he couldn't. Domali kilo and parachos laruach. It seems to me that they just drift off into the wind. Avalim anasela galman hauchal. If I try, if I keep on trying, even though I'm tired, will I be able to give life and shape and form in the physical world of Malchus to these thoughts and feelings? Do I can I find any way to express these these inner these inner spiritual thoughts, feelings, experiences? You know what that means? These thoughts and feelings that I have are mizazim. In, in the shirun that I give, I take pieces from Arisa Tshuva. So I, I, I learned Arisa Tshuva the whole Elul and Kippur. So Rav Kook himself said, you know, each year when I open up the Arisa Tshuva, it's, he was once learning the Arisa Tshuva and he learned his own cipher. He says, you know, I see I see unbelievable things, new things in here every year, in his own cipher. I see new things, new new insights every year, in his own cipher. Because when there's something that's real from oneself, it doesn't stop. That's what the Piazessan is talking about. It's it's from generation to generation it takes on different forms of expression. Even with even to oneself. So he says, these cause me to shake, to tremble, these deeper thoughts and feelings. And these thoughts and feelings are themselves demanding to be known, to be expressed, to become part of this world. Do I have the ability to carry out the will of these of these desperate feelings that I have? I am forced to answer 
Lo velo. I do not. I cannot do it. That's what he says. You thought he was going to say, I'm going to try. He says, Lo velo. Absolutely not. I can't. And if I continue, to, and if I seek to fulfill this inner demand, that's constantly gnawing at my heart, that's pulling at my heart, that's tugging at me. If I end up putting on paper, then it's not going to be the ones that are screaming at me, that they, they, they require revelation, they're asking to be revealed. If I will do it, I will do something. But it's not going to be what's, what's, it's not going to be. I'm not responding to the outcry of my deepest thoughts, of my deepest feelings. He says, low, low, that I can't do. He simply says, I don't know how to do it. I don't have the kalim to do it. Rakis, Haydon Harochok, a distant, faint echo. I'm able. To, I'm going to try to put into writing a faint echo of myself. As tzel tzilon, a shadow of a shadow. Uma'asa. So what should I do? The first person. Uma'asa. Remember, this was not written up for publication either. There was originally these were amongst his writings. Uma'asa. So he says, what should I do? said that I'm craving, yearning, and longing to enter into the courtyard of my king, of my God. My heart and my flesh are singing, are calling out to the living God. So I said it's time to write, to put into writing my deepest self into a Megillah Sefer, into a scroll, into a document. These are all psukim. Hashem, my greatest desire is to do your will. But your Torah is hidden within my kishkes, in my intestines. Bisarti Tzedek V'Kahal Rav. Another pasuk. I call out to the to, to the community, the kahal rav in public. I speak about your righteousness, Hashem, in public. But I don't hold back my lips. I don't imprison my words. Hashem lokim Hashem, you know, meaning you know that this that there's an infinite more that I I just can't say. Ato, he says, yodata Hashem. Rav Kook writes, you know. The rak ato yadat, and only you know. Vani achashesi mitovu keevi neakar. Adjeterapeus keevi. He says that my pain is great. My pain is great. And I must remain silent until you heal this pain that I have. Adjeterapeus keevi, until you're able to, until Hashem, you will heal this, this pain that I have. It means the Pasuk, until that day when the banks of the river will overflow. And all of the and all of the gardens that surround the river will be enlivened, will be nourished by the overflowing banks of the river. He's speaking about himself. 
Until that day will you allow, will, when you will allow my deepest feelings to overflow the banks of my life. And in doing so, Hashem, you will give life to all the fruits, all the gardens that surround me, my students, my, my children, my grandchildren, the Jewish people. That you will finally release the mouth of one who is mute, who can't speak. You will allow me to speak. In other words, I'm waiting for you, Hashem, to give me the words to say these things. And this river, it says in Pesach, and this river is flowing out from the wellspring that comes from the house of God. And this will irrigate and give life to the place that's called Shittim. This itself is a very deep terror. I spoke about this years ago in Parashat Shlach with the Indian of Yeshua and Rochav. It's not for now. But to irrigate and to give life to even that place which seems to be filled with Shittim, with Shtusim, with Narishkai. Oz Yedalika, Yol Pisech, Vesoran, Loshan Elaim brings the Pasig on that day. And that day, the Pisech, the one who was disabled, the one who was crippled, will be able to dance. The Sarin Loshan Elaim, and the one who was mute, who couldn't speak, will be able to sing. And he goes on. After this paragraph, he says again, Why can't I put into writing all my feelings? All of the murmurings of my heart, of my soul that are so hidden. Who is the one that's holding it back? Who's keeping, who's forcing the idea to remain inside of its shell? doesn't allow it to be born, these children, to be born. Who is suffocating? Who is suffocating the vibrancy of the life of my soul? Suffocating that I can't, I can't breathe. Do not allow these deeper thoughts and feelings and all of their splendor to be revealed. My spiritual kaiches, the kirbi shoagim are roaring, are screaming, from the great weariness and pain. They feel that they are imprisoned. And so on. This is just a tiny, tiny little taste. He ends this paragraph with the words, Tilas Hashem Yedaber P. He says, I don't know I don't know how to, I don't know how to say this stuff. So, Tils Hashem Yadabrafi, the praises of, the praises of Hashem, let my mouth speak. I can't control it. If you wanted Hashem to come out to me, Tils Hashem Yadabrafi, my mouth will say it. I don't know how to get it out from there, but let it be said. That my mouth should speak all that, should be able to express all that the heart contains. That my pen, if you wanted to, Hashem, then you will help my pen to express all that is hidden in the depths of my thoughts. And from the darkness, light will emerge. Or, 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 light, light, light. Or, Hashem, Hashem, you are my light and my salvation. From whom should I be afraid? 
Hashem orli Hashem, you are my light. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for people like us to understand what what these tzaddikim were trying to were trying to do, were trying to accomplish. And 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 if I read a little bit extra, maybe I shouldn't have spent so much time, but I wanted to give you a, a living example of what the Rebbe is talking about. <clears throat> that type of a of a journal, and how and how these tzaddikim who were living before the darkness felt felt the urgency of expression. We could begin. We could be, begin the second the second see if the second ice. If you truly desire to serve Hashem, and you really want to lift yourself up, and you don't want to look at yourself when you're seventy. I used to think that seventy was a, was you know I used to think that seventy was really some crazy faraway world, you know. <laughs> And all of us, uh, most of us, there's still some uh, pretty uh, young Hever here, but most of us already, it's not, it doesn't seem, you know, uh, it doesn't seem as old as it used to. So he says, you want to, he says, you want to be such a person that when you're 70, you're the same as when you were by mitzvah? He says, he says, listen, if you want to, if you, if you have a Rotson to serve Hashem, that you shouldn't end up crafting when you're 70 that I'm no different than when I was by mitzvah. Sometimes it's even worse. Sometimes it's even worse. Because in those days, the Bar Mitzvah Bachar, at least in those days, was not was usually untainted by the world. wasn't stained by the world. Nowadays, by the time the kids Bar Mitzvah, he's already able to give dissertations on, on things that you and I never heard of. The kids that are Bar Mitzvah. But they hear from their friends and what they hear on a, on a, on a school bus, right? So the kids, the kids, the kid of bar mitzvah has a certain bar mitzvah bacher has a big advantage over us. Other they're ever saying you want your avoda to be like some of us are thinking halavai halavai. At least when I was bar mitzvah, you know, <laughs> I, I was pure, I was good, and I, you know, my belief in Hashem was intact. All right, maybe I have some more information now, but you know, the information if it comes from the etzadas, then it's never really worthwhile because the the information is always tayvera. And when you and when children they eat from the etzachan they eat from the tree of life so whatever they have it's real. Whatever a child tastes it's from the etzachan but adults we taste it's from the etzadas toifer after yeah of shenayin. what the what the what the tzaddik from Radzin and Ishbitz used to call the ilona desveika the tree of doubt because everything that you and I everything that you and I absorb in, in ruchnius and holiness there's always that little amolek that says maybe not. Children don't have that amalek all over there. The children don't have that. A child eats from the Yitzchayim Mamish. A child eats from the tree of life. And when you teach him Torah, thus is thus. We, we messed up the kids in. Because the kids, the kids learn to learn skepticism from us. They don't learn skepticism from strangers. If the parents would be certain, if the parents would live, like Rav Kook spoke about, the light in the light of a dose of certainty, and if the parents were eating from Yitzchayim, and the children will continue to eat from the tree of life. Everybody's wondering what happens to the kids. Everybody says to the kid, you were so good, you were so sweet. What happened to you? If the kid were able to express it, and the kid were honest, the kid would say, nothing different than happened. what happened to you. 
What do you mean? Just growing up. When you grow up, especially in America, in 2001, so everything that a person eats, everything that one absorbs in this world, is all the fruit, everybody's so nervous about that maybe there's some funny stuff in the water. <laughs> that's the funny stuff that's killing people. All these environmentalists. I'm not saying that it's not a concern, but everybody's so much sugar. Everybody's so much sugar that they look at every label to see that all the ingredients should be natural. But everything that they read and they watch is, is, is so artificial, so phony, and so disgusting, contrived, coarse, and unrefined. But I only have Poland Springs water. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> the water that I have, it comes, where does it say over here? From Maine, Ephesus. A whole, there's a whole McGill on the back. Found deep in the woods of Maine. <laughs> deep in the woods of Maine. Listen, natural spring water, and I mean nothing against these people. Natural spring water is exceptionally well protected by nature. For over 150 years, people have appreciated its distinctive, clean, crisp taste. We hope you do too. <laughs> now have a drink and go to your filth. Go to your, go to your craziness. Go to your, go to your magazine, go to your movie and your book and go to your stupid conversation that you're in the midst of your whole life. You never finished. But you have your Poland Spring, you have your perfectly refined and clear water. No? The Michigan Welt, it's an Eilam Hafu. The, the more the world is becoming dirty inside, the more they're worried about everything getting cleaned up outside. It's the Michigan Welt. But our grandparents, they weren't so worried. All right, there's something in my water. No, I'm asking a minute. My father is 100% convinced that some guy is doing this with a hose in the back of some factory. <laughs> there ain't no way you're going to convince him this comes from Maine. He says, and you can't get my father to pay for water. And my sister and I have spoken about daddy and hostess. My father says, I'm not paying for water. I don't care. So he says, but it's different water. Daddy. He says, nah, it's no different. I'm not paying for water. But look at the world we're living in. This is, this is the diagram of the world. This is the diagram. And if there's some ingredient that's not, so then the congressmen and all the politicians and the, and the sociologists and the doctors and the anthropologists and who's a whole to do. But that, but that was completely, completely out of touch. <clears throat> and we've lost that, that clarity, we've lost that pureness. That a child is not permitted to be a child. Children can't be children anymore. That everything that they have is from the Etzadas, it's from the tree of doubt. And that is what takes away the simcha from the, from the generation. There's never been such an unhappy generation. Listen, people always had difficulties. People, there was always unhappiness. But the kind of unhappiness that you have now, the kind of unhappiness that if you have any seichel, if you have any seichel, if, you want, if you're thinking about a profession for your kid, you for sure should tell him to be a psychologist. If you have any suffolk, if you have any suffolk at all, there's no question about it as far as a future for somebody. Because Tsaris... Depression. Computer <laughs> what? Computer psychologist. There's such a thing? <laughs> I, I don't know. I get you know because I hear new things. I get scared. There will be. There will be. Yeah, Mr. There will be. There will be. My daughter told me. My daughter told me that. You know, there's this thing with hologram. You know, there's a home. There's a thing to. Pro they're working on to project an image into thin air. You know this? There's a book. Uh, what's it called? A hologram. A hologram. A hologram. A hologram. Okay. Somebody gave me a book to read, Holographic Universe. I started reading it, but you know, it was, it was too much. I couldn't. Uh, I'm not ready for that. But they're going to have a way. So my daughter said he can have a mitzvah. She read this. She read this someplace. There's going to be this kind of a mitzvah. There's going to be a mitzvah, and it could be soon that they'll be able to be a college 
without a classroom. You could already have this a little bit on the internet, right? Without a classroom. But this is better. It's not just with the machine. You'll be able to have in 10 different places the best lecture in the world. Standing, standing someplace in your living room. Or you could get together a little group, a class, in Topeka. And this professor is sitting with, the, with this uh, holograph-making machine, whatever it is, someplace in Brooklyn, or Manhattan, and stands there and talks to you. She said more than that. She saw that there's going to be mommies that are going to be, they're going to be mommies that are at work, mommies that are away for a couple of weeks on some business trip, and they're going to stand in the room putting the child to sleep. Yeah. In other words... In other words, the kid's going to go to bed, and there's going to be some image of mommy. <laughs> hear this? That's like flashed into the room, but's able to move and do stuff, right? And we'll go, and we'll and we'll lean over to the child and say Kriya Shema, and say Gaishluf and Tatala right? But the kiss the child can't feel. I think there it's limited. They don't have it yet unless they have a robot. But from the image on, in, 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 in that you can't. That they can't do, not yet. Maybe they'll think of an Aitzah for that. But, you hear this is what's, what's going to be. We have to do Tshuva and Davin for Mashiach. Have a good Shabbos.